So did, did anybody get up early to watch the events across the pond? So some did, some got up early. You say, it's all right, put your hand up, it's okay. I didn't myself, but if you did, that's all right. So we won't make fun of you or anything like that. Did anybody follow the liturgical news leading up to Saturday? So BBC, early in the week, had an article headlined this. People watching the coronation will be invited, just so you know, in the Anglican world, invited is a loaded word. Doesn't it sound nice? When people in the Church of England especially invite you to something, pay attention to what it is. You will be invited later in this service to make an offering. <laughs> pay attention. People watching the coronation will be invited to join a chorus of millions to swear allegiance to the king and his heirs, organizers say. The public pledge is one of several striking changes to the ancient ceremony revealed on Saturday. That's Saturday a week ago. In a coronation full of firsts, female clergy will play a prominent role and the king himself will pray out loud. I have to admit, my first reaction to this was like, oh, isn't he brave? Right, like big king here. But then I thought, you know, actually, that's actually pretty cool. I, I don't, I'm not advocating for or against him. I don't know. I just thought the king himself praying out loud. That's, that's pretty good. Actually, it's pretty cool. It does take courage to pray out loud. So good on him. The public will be given an active role in the ceremony for the first time with people around the world set to be asked to cry out and swear allegiance to the king. This homage of the people replaces the traditional homage of the peers. So, okay, it's, it's, they're trying to democratize the thing, right? I get it. But how do you democratize something by saying this? Everyone in the Abbey and watching at home will be invited to pay homage in what Lambeth Palace described as a chorus of millions. The order of service will read, all who so desire in the Abbey and elsewhere say together, I swear that I will pay true allegiance to your majesty and to your heirs and successors according to law, so help me God. I mean, that bit doesn't sound quite as democratizing, does it? It will be followed by the playing of a fanfare. Did you follow the news? Did anybody catch this? Anybody follow this? Did you follow what happened later? Like they had so much pushback that they actually had to change it. So they actually went away. And the, the language ended up being much gentler and stuff, which they, of course, explained as being because of Charles' humility, because he really wouldn't want all those people to swear homage to him after all, which is very funny. <laughs> anyway, we have our own foibles over here. We do. Uh, we talk about those a lot. Sometimes, though, you just notice when you look across at someone else. Sometimes it's easier to see as an outsider. And what, what's, what, do, you, what do you feel is sort of under these changes? I think it's a sense of dis-ease or of unease, right? Queen Elizabeth, after all those years, what's going to happen? Is the monarchy going to survive, right? Have you seen the articles about how you can pretty much get arrested in England these days for saying the slightest thing in public against the monarchy? I mean, it's actually been kind of jaw-dropping, right? A, a man who was on his way home from church Sunday a week ago, Charles was in his neighborhood walking down the street. The people were going nuts, and he just sort of goes, why are you all bowing down to an equal? I'm not kidding. And he gets arrested. 
not the England we thought we knew. What is it? There's an unease, isn't there? Are we going to survive as an institution, the monarchy? So we're going to invite all kinds of people to swear allegiance. It's not the only measure of unease in society these days. We, we talk about this a lot here. Here's a few others from across the pond, just looking at friends in a different place. Headline, as yet another new group arises, Britain's climate movement could fall apart. Now this happens with reform movements or protest movements or activist movements. When they start feeling the pressure, they splinter. Some people say, hold the line, keep working with them. Others say, we've been working with them forever, and it hasn't gotten us anywhere. It's time to go radical. And so they start to splinter. And it's happening with that. Again, unease, dis-ease, not sure, things in flux. How about this one from over here? A man widely seen as the godfather of artificial intelligence has quit his job, warning about the growing dangers from developments in the field. Jeffrey Hinton, 75, announced his resignation from Google in a statement to the New York Times, saying he now regretted his work. He said some of the dangers of AI chatbots were quite scary. Right now, they're not more intelligent than us, as far as I can tell, but I think they soon may be. Right? There's just three I picked. You can pick a lot of different things all the time. It's just the water we swim in. We know it. We feel it. It's a time of deep flux. So many things in flux. So no surprise, depression, anxiety, of course. Where to stand? Questioning who we are. What does it mean to be a human being? What's my identity? Who and what am I? All these kinds of things because where do you stand? How do you orient yourself? What's big enough, strong enough, solid enough to hold on to. It's just the water we're swimming in. Stay with me and connect these dots. Sometimes I think we don't help ourselves because we don't see the biblical heroes as real people. Sometimes I think we make this unnecessary space between us and what we believe about God because we don't see the biblical heroes or authors as real people, right? It all worked out for them. Paul's up with the Lord now. He's okay. He was a hero. I, my goodness, the confidence the man had. But in the moment, it wasn't like that. In the moment, they don't know how it works out. In the moment, they are making ripples in the world. They're taking the initiative to make ripples in the world, to break things up, to make change. Paul grew up one of the brightest of his people. He was taught by one of the leading professors, if you will, of all of his people in one of their Ivy League schools. He knew the twists and the turns of history. He knew that the Egyptians, and then the Babylonians, and then the Assyrians, and then the Persians, and then the Greeks, and now the Romans had ruled the world. And they'd been given this expectation that they were God's chosen, and that things would work out. So they began to splinter in the waiting. And the different Jewish groups picked different ways of trying to deal with the difficulties of life. 
seemed to have changed the story he understood himself to be living, right? When someone comes and says he is the Messiah, that's ours, we own that. And we didn't like him, so we got him killed. And then people start saying he's alive again and the story spreads. That's when Paul loses himself. That's when Paul resorts from being the smartest dude around to doing things that basically they could have hired a thug to do, right? Because he can't hold it together anymore. He's losing himself. He's acting extremely. And then he's going along and the resurrected Jesus meets him. And the Jesus who defeated the powers in his resurrection defeats Paul. Paul says this himself. Paul is overcome. And Paul then goes, it's clear, it's in there. He says he did, but we don't pay attention to it. Paul then goes and takes three years out of the game. He goes from the hero of his people to realizing he's been wrong to taking three years off the grid, off the screen, off the whatever, right? Why? Well, surely, yes, he's got to grieve those, you know, the death of Stephen. Yes, he's going to grieve the evil he's been a part of, the violence that he's done. But I think even more than that, he's trying to figure out what is real. He's trying to figure out what on earth. How could I have been so wrong? I thought I had it all sorted, and then it turns out I was wrong about God, the very thing I'd staked everything about me on. So he takes three years for it all to sort out. It's like it has to settle inside him. It has to recalibrate his, his mind and his whole story, his whole orientation. Because Jesus, in his resurrection, defeats the powers, and Paul was an agent of the powers. He was the powers. Paul was them. That unsettling feeling when you realize, oh, I'm them. You know, whatever they want, I'm they. Paul was they. So he goes out for three years. And when Paul comes back, yes, he is confident. He is alive. He's indestructible. He's indefatigable. Don't you love that word? I love that word. Indefatigable. I'd love to be indefatigable. And he's indefeatable. I know, I cheated. Undefeatable. He's so alive. But his life is still not easy. Not nearly. And he still can't be confident at any point that he knows how it works out or that he just knows what to do next to make it work. When Paul writes to churches, he is in angst for them, right? So 2 Corinthians, three times I was beaten with a rod. Once I received a stoning. Three times I suffered shipwreck. Night and a day I spent adrift in the open sea. Imagine Paul in the open sea. Is he saying, eh, no problem. I know how this works out. Someday I'll be writing about this. Yeehaw. He's out there adrift in the open sea. I've been on journeys many times. I've been in danger from river, from robbers, from my own countrymen, from Gentiles in the city, in the wilderness, at sea, in false brothers, in hard work and toil, through many sleepless nights in hunger and thirst, many times without food, cold and without enough clothing. And then, get this, I love this. 
Then he says, apart from all this, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxious concern for all the churches. Paul is suffering all this stuff and his life is wild. And yet he says, beyond all of that, it's the love I feel for the people. The love I have for these churches, the desire that they would not be overcome by the powers after we went and proclaimed to them the Jesus that overcomes the powers and that they wouldn't get back into that kind of slavery to the powers. And in spite of all the things Paul suffers, he says, there's this thing. There's this thing that I carry. And then even better, who is weak and I am not weak? Talk about vulnerability. Who is weak and I am not weak? Who is led into sin and I do not burn things from Romans chapter 8? Three simple resurrection truths from Romans chapter 8. The first one is, if God is for us, who can be against us? These are Paul's words. If God is for us, who can be against us? Indeed, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, freely give us all things? If God is for us, who can be against us? If I need to prove it to you, well, look at that cross. If God would do that, he wouldn't waste it. He's not going to sacrifice himself at his own cost and then waste it. If he'll give you that, he wants to bring you in and he will give you whatever you need and he will love you because he does. He chose to do this. It's his way. Second, Christ is the one who died and more than that, he was raised who is at the right hand of God, who is also interceding for us. I love this little phrase, more than that. Paul uses that language several times in his various letters. Whenever he uses it, what he's saying is, here's here's a foundational reality, right? Okay, here's a starting place. Like, here's a place to stand. And then more than that, that foundational reality leads to this higher thing. So he's saying Jesus' crucifixion is the reality. The self-giving love of God is the thing, the energy at the core of the universe. Even God's having created is itself an act of self-giving love, a sacrifice by God, if you will, making space for other, making space for others in his own image who would be able to hurt him and to, and to not requite his love. Paul says, so this way of God that's at the very core, the core energy at the heart of the entire universe, this pulsing love is amazing. But more than that, it leads beyond itself to Jesus having been raised. He has been raised. He is alive, and the powers have been defeated by the beauty of this vulnerable love. They've been outwitted. They've been made to look creepy. They've been made to look overbearing. They've been made to look like they're inviting you to something, and you realize it's your slavery. That neither death nor life nor angels. It's one of these in the perfect tense. The perfect tense is... 
a moment that I don't mind doing grammar because, the, again, the perfect tense, we've talked about this before. In Greek, perfect doesn't mean, you know, all put together. In Greek, means perfect reach, mean, means reaching its fulfillment, being the thing it's supposed to be, getting there. And the perfect tense means a thing has been done that is so complete that the ripples of it carry on and on and on and on. Paul's saying, I am convinced. I met him. I've met the resurrected Jesus. I am convinced. Paul uses this phrase in this radical form five times, and all five of them in his various letters are for people's encouragement. The, the, the fantastic one is 2 Timothy chapter 1. He's, Paul says, this is why I suffer as I do, but I'm not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am persuaded that he is able to guard until that day that which has been given to me. I know whom I have believed. I am persuaded that he is able. I'm persuaded, Paul says. I am convinced that nothing, death, life, angels, heavenly rulers, things that are present, things in the present moment in your life, things to come, or height, powers, depth, or anything else, will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Our gospel lesson this morning gave us a wonderful little example of that, right? Jesus gets in the boat. He goes across the lake with his disciples. Lovely little hilarious thing there in the grammar. They get into the boat. They land on the other side. He gets out. Hilarious little twist in the grammar. The rest of them are sitting there going, I don't know about this. Jesus gets out. And he goes up, and there's the man in the tombs. And and then the the love of Jesus and the resurrection power of Jesus has allowed that man to be in his right mind and at peace. And they find him in his right mind. And then there's odd twist in the story. This is the only story I can think of where Jesus listens to demons and like reasons with them. And then he gives them permission to do what they want, right? Weird. What makes it even more weird is then the man who he's healed at the end of the story says, can I get in the boat, come with you? And the verb is repeated, but this time in the negative, he did not permit him. And you're just sort of going, I don't know, right? Didn't expect that. Not the way I would have written the story. But Jesus says to him, what? Just go share your story. Just go be honest and share your story, that's all. So the man goes and he shares his story. And people are amazed. They move from fear to amazement. This kind of vulnerable honesty that Paul says, who is weak? You know, who's not weak? I'm weak. Who isn't weak? Who's not inadequate to these things? This kind of vulnerable honesty where this man goes and he shares... You know, I was overwhelmed by the powers and then Jesus came along and now, hey, I'm somewhat in my right mind. I mean, you can imagine him going around to the pubs and being like, I got now I got at least half a brain, right? And having fun with it. That's why our, our language, our new core language, we're connecting to God, to community, to creation. Trinity North Shore is a community growing into wholeness by living our inner lives in connection to God's love, letting that love connect us to other others, 
and honoring our connection to all things. Friends, Romans 8, Paul is saying, from the cosmos to your cubicle, whatever it is, Jesus is with you there and for you there. And nothing is strong enough to separate you from his love. Let's take a few minutes and pray together. Invite you just to just to name the powers that are weighing on you, whatever whatever those would be. They don't have to be big external institutional things. They can be internal. They can be expectations or hatred that's been put towards you or your own sense of your own failure, even if it's true. Name the powers that weigh you down. Imagine yourself holding those up to the resurrected Jesus, naming them for before him. And here Paul's saying, I am convinced that whatever those are for you cannot separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus, who died for you. More than that, who was raised?